Think back to when you were in elementary school, adolescence, and young adulthood, to a time in your life when belonging seemed critically important. If I'm being honest, the search for belonging is still critically important to my life, and I'm a bit older. I mean, who among us doesn't wonder, where do we fit in? Who are the people we can be ourselves with? Where can we be known, seen, heard, and loved? Feelings of belonging or not belonging influence the choices we make, the dreams we pursue, the opportunities to which we have access, and even, quite literally, the parties to which we're invited. There's a quote by activist Verna Myers that I think applies. If diversity is being invited to the party, inclusion is being asked to dance. I love that. Seeing diversity as a dance is a lot more inviting than seeing it as an obligation. And I'm grateful that speaking with young folks really seemed to illuminate the beauty and diversity in the experiences of those we spoke with. Me too. I'm Darylise Lyons, a biracial journalist. And I'm Malcolm Burnley, also a biracial journalist. This is the last episode of a three-part series sponsored by grant funding from the National Association of Black Journalists and part of a larger project amplifying the voices of biracial folks of all ages and experiences. But for these three episodes, Darylise and I spoke with young folks. And Malcolm, those conversations have helped bring home that exploration and even play can be a powerful source of strength and understanding when it comes to issues of identity, culture, and belonging. I literally did a play. Oh my gosh, I think it was two years ago. That's crazy. Uh, Titled Belonging. And it was virtual because it was COVID. So maybe it was 2020. But yeah, I mean, my sense of belonging, it's been difficult in certain areas of my life, but then other areas, it's easy. I fit right in. But as far as race is concerned, it is hard, you know, trying to find someone to relate to like solely based on skin color. I know before I was saying like, that's the only thing we have, but now it's like, I can't even find that. So, (laughs) you know what I mean? So, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I belong in a lot of places, but I think sometimes I will reflect or I'll like realize, but also, and then like, I'll look around me and I'm like, okay, well, like I am the only black person. I am the only biracial person here, you know? And then I realized like, oh, wow. I do realize, oh, wow, there's such like a limit of where I am. It's only me sometimes. And I'm proud of that, but also a little bit like, hmm, interesting, you know, kind of just something in the, in the back pocket <laughs> to know. <laughs> that was 17-year-old Whitley Alfer. She lives in a predominantly white town in California, along with her two siblings, their black mom and white dad. Whitley highlighted the often transient nature of belonging and how it can differ based on context. Absolutely. In some situations, racial identity might feel critically important to a person's sense of fitting in. And in others, it might feel completely irrelevant. Considering I live in the middle of West Virginia, I'm going to have to go with no. I can count on my hands. How many people of color there are at my school? That was Isaiah Starks, who turned 15 a week after our interview. He said that there were times when race felt extremely important, living as he does in a predominantly white rural town in West Virginia. But he also says it's not where he derives his sense of belonging. It can be tricky because the mixed experience is hardly a monolith. Race can be a crucial part of the identity of a mixed individual even when that identity is not recognized by a surrounding community. Conversely, for other mixed people like Isaiah, race might feel less critical to their internal identity, 
Although during interactions with others, it can be made into a big deal, impacting their sense of self nonetheless. Either way, race usually plays a significant role in how mixed people experience belonging. I wonder if some of that may be because for multiracial people, it seems like we're often asked to belong in fixed binary categories, even if our experiences are more complicated and nuanced. Darylise, do you remember the old Scantron tests where you'd be asked to shade in a single bubble for your racial identity? Absolutely. Those tests had so few options, and it always felt like they were inadequate when it came to describing my racial identity. So what did you do? Which bubble did you shade? Well, believe it or not, I shaded three bubbles, black, white, and other. So you broke the rules. Yeah, but breaking the rules was the only way to show up in that context as my complete self. And interestingly, that paradox seems to be something that many of those we spoke with spoke about. I asked Isaiah's older brother, Jaden, age 17, if he feels like he's found a sense of belonging. I wouldn't say like truly belonging, but I would definitely say like folks who like made a place like this, like a lot more bearable. Jaden was referring to systemic racism and the difficulty of navigating mostly white spaces as a person of color. Isaiah has faced those types of racist interactions as well. When you say racist comments, can you tell me more about that? Like slurs and stereotypes. Like uh, I do running and swimming, but uh, when I was in the running season, uh, there's a stereotype that like black people can run faster. And s- since I'm swimming now, uh, there's a stereotype that black people can't swim. Did people directly say that to you or how did you uh, find that out? That is like the gist of it. But like, yeah, people said that to me. What did you do? Uh, nothing. What did you want to do? Nothing. It doesn't really affect me. I just laugh it off. Isaiah said he's fairly impervious to the negative opinions of others, and that, all in all, he's very popular and feels like he belongs in a variety of different friendship groups. I have, like, multiple different friend groups. Like, I have one of them who is my main friend group that I play video games with, and then I have another one. They're the ones that usually got into the most fights. Okay. I have another one, uh, just the swim team. Reese Matheson, who turns 13 this January, also considers herself to be highly adaptable, very social, and capable of fitting in with different groups of friends. I definitely see myself as an extrovert. I uh, make friends very easily. I definitely, I think I look for different things and different friends. Like some of my friends, I eat lunch at the, like I eat at a table with some friends, but then it's like, I will play games with other friends. Like, I'll play basketball, and the friends who I eat lunch with, they rock around in circles and talk all recess. And the friends that I'll eat lunch with, they, they're they extroverts, and they're, they, I mean, I, I would guess. But when I play, and then I have another friend, like, the people I play basketball with, I wouldn't, they're, like, my friends, but, like, we just both happen to, like, like to play the same game. So, like, we all kind of play. What Reese is talking about here is a common theme of the biracial experience, accessing more than one social circle or community. To non-mixed people, this might sound almost like a sort of superpower. 
But don't be fooled into thinking socializing as an adaptable extrovert is a completely idealistic picture, especially when you're aware of various identity intersections, one of which is race. Like everyone's not like one big happy friend group. Like there are, even just today, there was people, it's not like we're all like perfectly like happy Quakerly children. So people do distance themselves as groups and there is like, especially at lunch, this is this is what I'm picturing. Like I can see different tables and I can name different people at different tables. And you can see like there's one table for all of the boys. All the boys are at one table. And then all of the people who like identify as African-American, they all sit at one table. And there's some like other smaller groups, but the bigger groups are like, male, female. And then I want to say like necessarily race just because like, I don't want to sit with that race. Do you feel like it's people come together around what they think they have in common or something that feels really important to them? I think that maybe what they have in common, they do like the people who sit at that, that table, they take it like very seriously that they sit at a table with people with the same racism. And that is the only table that sits the, the table with all the boys, the table with all the girls, it's kind of like mixed. But then when you see that one, they take it very seriously. And it's for the people who like don't, wouldn't really like put themselves in just one race or like don't know. It can be very like, I don't know what's, what, what word to use. I guess intimidating a little bit. It's intimidating to be someone who doesn't see themselves as entirely one race or another. And to know that at least at lunchtime, that can be a barrier to belonging. And these issues are arbitrary and specific to the particular school environment and student body. Reese attends a school that she described as inclusive but not inclusive. Her sister Riley, on the other hand, goes to a school with small classes of only eight students that is geared towards catering their teaching to different learning styles. And in her case, Riley felt like it was easy to bring friends from disparate social groups together, both at school and out of school. I met different friends, but I had a friend... So I went to a summer camp and I met this girl called Mazzy and another girl named Jules. And Mm -hmm. we were friends and then we just met back up. Um, Yeah. And then I met another girl. Her name was Tallulah. And I already had a sleepover with them. Similarly, Layla Jacobs, age nine, has been able to connect with a variety of different friends. And it's not surprising to hear her share what has the power to bring people of all identities together? Do you have a best friend? Oh, yes. I have a lot. Yeah, tell me about them. One person is Leslie and Liesl. They're twins and they live in my street. And Tucker, which he left his backpack here. What qualities do you look for in your friends? Or is there something that is similar about all of them? Or Oh, yes. We all like food. <laughs> okay. Tell me about we your all- favorite food. Oh, all of my favorite food is pizza. Tucker, whose name you may recognize from one of our two previous episodes, and Layla, both love pizza, are biracial, and live a few miles away from one another in the Ohio suburbs. Their parents are friends, and although neither Layla nor Tucker talk to each other about their biraciality, they notice it, and they value one another's presence in their lives. Is that important to you to have people that look like you? Does it matter? I mean, it's kind of important because, you know, not everybody is different. Some people are the same. Yeah. How'd you learn that? I don't know. I just thought of it. 
Here's Tucker, age eight. But also Layla's mom um, is white and her dad's black. Yeah. What do you think about that? Mm, I don't know. But one thing I like, um, so like the other day ago, we went to the zoo lights. What's that? It's like you go to a zoo and they have Christmas lights. Oh, cool. Okay. And I saw Stu talking to Marcus. So boys were talking to boys. And my mom was talking to Miss Cassie. And um, Miss Cassie was pushing my um, Nero, Layla's little brother. And like girls talking to girls, boys talking to boys. And a girl playing with a boy and kids like me and Layla were playing with each other. And I was like, oh, this makes sense because a boy playing with a girl and a girl playing with a boy, but boys are talking to boys, the grownups, and they were talking to like the same, like, per- well, like not person, but they were the same like thing, like girl. I know that you said you noticed that, but tell me more about how you felt about that or what you well, felt like, about it. Just, it felt good because I was like, oh, this feels really good. So we can have time together. And just, I don't know not to explain it, but it just felt good because everyone was talking to the same person. I said, like, girl and boy. Mm-hmm. I don't really not to explain it. Sometimes having a friend who shares a similar background or identity means not having to explain oneself. It means being understood in advance. That's one of the things Akemi Blake Marquez, a 21-year-old living in Southern California, values about her friendships with her extended network of multiracial friends. Where in your life have you been able to, or have you been able to cultivate a sense of belonging? Where do you feel like you belong? Since I became a teenager, most of my friends have been biracial. So that has been helpful. So at least they know what it's like to be racial in those experiences. 12-year-old Liam Marion told me he appreciates having other biracial people in his life, people like his siblings and his few biracial friends. I mean, I'll have as many mixed friends. I have some, like there's this friend named Jaden. Not the Jaden you heard earlier. Same thing, he's mixed with uh, white and black or like African and... Caucasian. And so that's why we're kind of like friends a lot. We're like, we match the same energy and we're like more of like the same and stuff. So it's just nice to have a friend like that. Do you ever talk about it? I mean, not as much. We don't really talk about it to each other that much. While it can feel like a significant source of connection and community to have friends of shared racial backgrounds, people who relate to that specific aspect of our identity, it's also important not to assume that just because two people are a certain race, they're guaranteed to have anything in common. Like one time there was there's this kid sitting next to me named Owen. Uh, there's another black kid in my class named Kasai. And Owen was like, oh, you like Kasai. And I'm like, just because he's my colleague doesn't mean that I have to like him. Like there's a bunch of other kids in this class and you're saying I have to like that person. And so when you said that to him, what did Owen say? He just turned around because the teacher got mad at him for talking because the class just started. That was Susanna Starks, age nine, Jaden and Isaiah Starks' younger sister. And here's Whitley again. 
So for me, finding friends who were like me or who I guess were black as well, or who were biracial was hard because it's like, oh, like you have a different personality than me. Right. So it's like, what common ground are we coming to that we have in the same that I think was like the hardest part because like, oh, we're both. Yeah. It's like this this is what I'm trying to say. We're both biracial. We're both black. Right. But what else do we have in common? How do we find those commonalities? And what do we do when friendships are elusive or when we find ourselves bumping up against barriers to belonging? For instance, Layla shared about a time when her friends excluded her. You can hear her two-year-old brother and their mom in the background. One time during COVID, not really during COVID, like at the end of first grade when we had our fun day, nobody was even on my team. So I just felt sad. Why wasn't anyone on your team? I don't know. I just didn't want to be on my team. Did you kind of make up with those friends after? Yeah. Yeah? Did you have to have a conversation or something, or did it just kind of go away? Uh, yeah, they just said sorry all the time. Literally everybody in my class. Okay, tell me more he about said, that story, because that so seems like a big story. After school, at care after recess, we all had an extra recess, so they all said sorry. In the line. Has that ever happened before? Uh, that was the only time. And it's never happened after that? Uh, yeah, I have that. Layla made it clear this was an isolated incident, and also that this moment of exclusion left a lasting imprint on her. Which makes me wonder about those who are repeatedly excluded and ostracized, like Jackson Maynard. Ten-year-old Jackson and his sister Zoe, age eight, sat down for a joint interview and spoke candidly about the pain Jackson endured before he and Zoe transitioned to homeschooling. It was for me, it was really tough because my teachers, they didn't treat me well because I'm one of those kids who like to talk. Like when I'm at my mom and dad's business trip, I love being on the stage and I, and I want that microphone like all the time. But my teacher, she didn't like that. So all of my teachers did not like that. So there was one time where she, she put me at a table with all the kids who bullied me and yeah. Cause, cause she thought I was a bad kid. So that's oh good. Gosh. I'm so sorry. Can you tell me more about the bullying? Well, the kids, like, I, I know this is wrong. Like I brought these cards to school and I got, I didn't get in trouble yet, but there was my bully and he bullied me at the point where he ripped my card in half and then threw it in the trash. And it was not just any card. It was like a valuable card, a very valuable card. Akemi also shared that her time in school was difficult due to bullying. Unfortunately, I started puberty early. It's called um, precocious puberty, I believe. And so that made it hard because that's what I got bullied for. I had asthma, had early periods, I had acne, and I was a little bit taller, even though I'm still short now. But I was still taller than other kids. And I got made fun of for things like that. And I was like, I get that they were just kids. I do forgive them because, you know, kids be kids. But it was hard because not many people were biracial. There was like few here and there, especially when I lived in Spokane. Pretty much everyone was white and like two other kids were biracial. And then growing up in elementary school, it was pretty much the same way. Where it was like one or two other kids were biracial, including me. One example was in fifth grade, 
it was like right before winter break and the teacher decided to have us gather around and say something nice about each other and the boy was not able to think of anything nice to say about me at all even though I was like the nicest kid there that is so that's so hurtful Mm -hmm. what did the teacher do he said that if you can't think of anything, then you'll have to try again later. If you still can't, then I'll have to put you in timeout. And for you, how did you react in that moment? It was definitely hurtful because it was like, what the heck? You know, I'm, I'm nice to everyone. So it's like, you should be able to think of at least one thing. What is the thing that you like most about yourself? <laughs> I, I like to believe I'm funny and I am definitely creative. In the face of barriers to belonging, Akemi's creativity and sense of humor have been among her biggest assets. Which have been critical considering the absence of allyship. Akemi shared that while she'd hope for more family support, there too, biases against biraciality made her feel like she didn't quite fit in. I almost want to say that I didn't have as much support because a lot of my family members aren't biracial. And I just feel like sometimes they're just kind of out for me simply because of that. Although her struggles with belonging don't define her identity, that doesn't mean they haven't been a part of her experience as a mixed person. My father's side of the family, they don't really contact me. Like, they know I exist, but they're just, like, shoving away. And then I don't really know much people on my mom's side of family. Like, we have a huge family, but... Not many of them talk to me. And then when they do talk about me, it's just rumors and then discussing with other family members. Lack of belonging within families was something that also came up for Zoe and Jackson. And this is real sad because like I actually got hurt and I and I thought my cousin, because my cousin and me, he's like a year older than me. And he calls me and he does a lot of mean stuff. And that's why when I turn when I turn eleven, because he's because tw- he's eleven right now, I'm not I'm not going to um the same middle school as him. That's why I'm in homeschool because, especially because his friends don't even like. And Noah hurts me a lot. Like I- there was one time where I was playing basketball, and he pushed me into my my grandparents. The pull of the basketball hoop, if he and almost got him, he almost got a kick. He almost got a kick. In concussion. No, no, I could have well, in my head. Yeah, wow. but he had a bump on his head. But I like to stick up a lot. I'm a Gemini, so I don't like arguments at all. I don't. I really don't. So mm-hmm. I try to stick up and try to stop the arguments. But like, I'm scared of my cousin because he's older than me. He's taller than me, and he does get mad at me a lot. So. Are we allowed to cry? You can, yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. You can feel whatever comes up, please. Um, but he doesn't really like me a lot. And so does my grandparents. And like Jackson always gets the blame. Jackson always gets the blame when he's over there. Mm. And it just makes me feel sad. Because Noah always our cousin Noah, he always gets away with things he lies. And Maya, that's what we call her. She doesn't. She doesn't. She's always on Noah's side. 
As Zoe and Jackson sat side by side crying, Zoe reached out and took her brother's hand. In turn, he leaned over and kissed her on her forehead. It was clear in that moment how much family means to them and how painful it's been to feel like outsiders, an issue that they know is rooted in their multiraciality. In particular, in the intersections of race and gender. It just makes me sick because Noah, my cousin, he, he's like, he hates me because I'm part white. And that's why, because I, I used to call him my mom. It doesn't really matter, though, because you can be good no matter what skin you have. When people are excluded on the basis of race or any other identity, it can have painful and lasting ramifications. But we are heartened to know that each of those we spoke to have found spaces of love, support, and solidarity, spaces where who they are is celebrated. And it was beautiful to see them celebrate themselves. Here are Liam and Adriana again. Why be the same, like be the same as everybody else? Like say somebody, someone's rude to someone else and you're just going to be the same as them. It's just not right. Being different's better because like you don't have to just think about if everybody was the same. They look the same, smell the same, act the same. So they're they're basically all just like robots. And if if you wanted to actually do what you love or like be different, you'd stick out more and just, I feel like it's better to being different because it's just better being yourself than being someone else. I feel like being um, different is a good thing too. Being multiracial isn't different. What is different is being authentic and finding spaces to belong where we and others can bring our full selves to the table, not feeling like we have to segment ourselves or placate others in order to belong. What's different is a radical investment in inclusion. Whitley had some incredibly valuable advice, which she said could be useful to people of all racial and ethnic backgrounds, and which is something she strives to pursue for herself something that has enabled her to feel at home within herself, both in environments where she belongs and those where she feels like a little bit of an outlier. Surround yourself with people who you love because if you surround yourself with people who you love, maybe it won't be so hard to be so confident. And surrounding yourself with people who don't look like you, that's a huge deal. Surrounding yourself, and I'm talking to literally everyone when I say this, that not just surrounding yourself with people who look like you is so important because you're able to understand different aspects of different races and different backgrounds. And that is really, I feel like what our whole purpose is, is to understand others and like what they believe, you know what I mean? Even if you don't agree with it, because it's healthy, right? You're going to agree to disagree. So it's healthy to do that and to be with people. My mom literally always used to tell me that she's like, don't be afraid of who you are. And like, also, and I'm telling you this is don't shy away from that and and surround yourself with literally people from all different types, from all different places, right? From all different corners of the world. I love Whitley's twofold suggestion, surrounding ourselves with people we love and also with people who don't look like us. It reminds me of the teachings of educator Rudine Bishop, who writes about representation in children's literature. Bishop shares that children need mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. They need to see themselves and their identities reflected through mirroring. 
They need to be able to peer into the experiences of others through windows, and they need sliding glass doors, spaces where they can invite connection and interaction and engagement with those who are different than themselves. Speaking of that, I'm glad that there are more resources for representation in literature and TV and podcasts, and that we can see stories featuring multiracial characters, some of which center around issues of identity, but others that simply depict people as they are without necessarily making race the only focal point, because we are vast and multidimensional. Absolutely. We're also ever-changing. And the more we can find meaningful, diverse, inclusive, self-honoring connections, the more we'll discover our own authentic selves, which can enable us to better express our gifts and our interests. Jaden spoke about that when he shared about his two conjoined dreams, the dream of expanding his social sphere to be more diverse, and the dream of being a video game designer. I guess the big thing above anything else is to find my people. And I mean like people who like, I also see similar ideas and like, you know, like also wanting to make games. Again, doesn't matter race, gender, sexuality, none of that. Like, it's just as long as they're people like I can actually be friends and get along with. Do you have that now? I mean, a bit, but I guess I want more of that feeling, you know, like a feeling of I belong here. If we find our people, those of all genders, races, religions, colors, ethnicities, orientations, abilities, and more, who are willing to challenge and inspire us and love us as we are, and if we can do the same for them, we create spaces of psychological safety. And the more safe spaces there are for people to bring their full selves forward and belong, the more we'll heal the harm caused by exclusion. Our hope is that through our work, we can bring forward stories that demonstrate the beauty of belonging and that inspire people, multiracial and not, to cultivate and to discover places where they can belong as all of who they are. Thank you for listening to this episode of the On Being Biracial podcast. Be sure to check out the previous two episodes of this three-part series and to like, rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to all of this season's interviewees, Jaden, Isaiah, and Susanna Starks, Akemi Blake Marquez, Mason Riley and Reese Matheson, Zoe and Jackson Maynard, Jackson Madrano, Layla Jacobs, Liam, Adriana, Oliver, and Finley Marion, Whitley Alfer, Sam and Zora, and Tucker, whose parents preferred not to share their last names, and all the parents who consented to allowing their children to speak with us. And we invite you to get in touch with us, as mentioned, we'll be launching more episodes in the near future with voices of a variety of different multiracial experiences. So however you identify, if your story involves multiracial or biracial ancestry, please go to our website onbeingbiracial.com and contact us there. A link is also included in the show notes. Yes, we'd love to hear from you. So thank you in advance. Thank you too to the National Association of Black Journalists whose support made this limited season possible. And be sure to check out our website, onbeingbiracial.com, to find out more about what you can expect from us moving forward and learn about some of the exciting work we're doing. Speaking of work, each episode of the On Being Biracial podcast is written, reported, and produced in collaboration between Darylise and myself, Malcolm Burnley, with audio editing and assistant production by Paul Kondo. The music you heard was 15th Street by Little Rock licensing courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. 
Thank you again for listening. We hope you've enjoyed these three episodes and that moving forward, you'll surround yourself with people who love you because you deserve to know that you belong.